Morning, familia. For those of you that um, might not know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors here at church. And I got to say that uh, uh, this morning I have been blessed in so many different ways. Um, this is something that I tell uh, Iglesia del Pueblo and our West Chicago campus every now and then. There's nothing that ministers to me besides the word the most that when I hear people singing. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this in scripture, but, it's, but heaven seems to be loud. Actually, there's only one time in the book of Revelations when we see that the entire, uh, you could say, congregation in heaven is quiet only for half an hour. And I don't think that we're going to be singing forever, but I know that we're going to be singing a lot. So today we got to taste a little bit of that, don't you think? How about if we give glory to God for that? Um, so today we want to continue this series that we started uh, about four weeks ago today. We are doing part four today of our summer series based on the book of Jonah, um, which is one of the minor prophets. And just in case I, I got to listen to Eric's sermon last week, so make sure that I don't say uh, some of the things that he already said, even though I'm, I'm, it's the same prayer. So you're going to hear some of the same things, but with a Latino accent, um, but I did not hear the uh, Josh sermon before that, so if I say something that was already mentioned, please forgive me. Um, but it is important that we understand that when we study the book of Jonah, when we are studying the book of Jonah, we have to understand, actually, that he was a prophet. That's a big thing. He's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, uh, meaning that he, was, he had a call and a responsibility before the Lord to speak to people and his behalf, on God's behalf. When we ignore the call of a prophet, then this book doesn't make much sense. What makes Jonah such a controversial book, and what makes the story of Jonah so um, sinful, if you will, is because he is refusing to walk and do the very thing that God chose them to do and called them to do, to speak to people on his behalf. So the magnitude of Jonah's sin is directly connected to his call. God chose him, God called him, God sends him, and he says, no. That's part of the issue that we have with Jonah. Now, because God is a God of aggressive grace, this is how people would call it, he was not planning, he was not planning to leave Jonah that way. Therefore, he was going to do anything in his power to actually save his soul. Not just to change his heart so he will preach the gospel to other people, but to save his soul. And part of, one of the things uh, that uh, when we read uh, Jonah chapter 2, the way we said it last week, it's actually, it's part of that. It's keeping that in mind that Lord, the Lord was doing something in Jonah to actually rescue him from himself. It's, that's why I call it aggressive grace. God was doing something, uh, or God was about to do something to rescue him from himself. I don't know if you ever heard this before, but your worst enemy is always yourself. You remember that movie that says sleeping with the enemy? Yeah, that's wrong. If you're thinking about somebody else. Always your worst enemy is the one inside of us. Actually, there is no greater uh, sin than the one that you cannot see. 
Well, that's kind of what we have here with Jonah. And this is part of the reason why the Lord sends the storm. And this is part of the reason why, as he's trying to escape from God, God does not allow him. This is part of the reason why he's in the middle of all this stuff that he's going through. And this is part of the reason why he lands inside the fish. And this is part of the reason why we started reading Jonah chapter 2, which is a prayer and a poem at the same time. So Pastor Eric last week gave us the first part of that prayer, and today we're going to look at the second part of that prayer, and I have to say that there are a few things that I have to repeat because it, appear, it appears in the text again, and because as a church we are committed to the text, well, tough luck, you're going to hear it twice, all right? So you could please stand for the reading of God's word, um, and we're going to be reading Jonah chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, Jonah chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. If you're still here, could you please say, I'm here. Actually, do me a favor because, you know, it's a lot of energy in the room. Can you look at the person next to you and say something like this? Would you, play, would you please pay attention today? Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> All right, that's enough, people. That's enough. All right, Jonah chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6. This is Jonah saying, To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. But if we repeat that last sentence together, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and he vomited Jonah unto dry land. Lord, I pray that you speak to us this morning. We had an amazing time of worship. We were encouraged and edified by the story of what's happening in Bolivia we are grateful, Lord, for what you do in our midst through our, genera- through the way you, uh, through our generosity, Lord. But now, Lord, we know that none of that stuff is real and happens unless your word is actively working in our hearts. Therefore, Lord, we pray for the presence of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, using your word to illuminate our minds, transform our hearts, and affect our will. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says... You may take a seat. All right. Today, we're going to talk about, once again, something that Eric uh, talked for about two minutes, because I was actually tracking the time. I talked about two minutes last week, um, and it's about the concept of sovereignty. And in, in Eric's defense, he was talking about other stuff. So he, he touched about it. They touched upon it because it shows in the text. But today, um, Bay, I think that the, 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 I think that we have to go back to the concept and actually work and then wrestle with that a little bit more. And the reason why I think that that's what we're supposed to do today is because scholars say that this concept that we're going to talk about today is actually the climax of that prayer. If you read right at the end, the sentence that I had you repeat, salvation comes from the Lord, that is the climax, the most foundation, a foundational thing, the most important thing in the entire prayer. Some scholars actually say that that's kind of the summary of the whole thing. Salvation 
comes from the Lord. Therefore, today we're going to talk about a well-known concept within Christianity and yet controversial concept within Christianity, which is the sovereignty of God, but not just in general terms and the sovereignty of God in creation, but the sovereignty of God in salvation. Everything that I'm going to say today, hopefully, comes from verse 9. Salvation comes from the Lord. I actually like the ESV translation of that a little more because it says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Let me stop there for a second. And the reason why I prefer the ESV translation is because when you read salvation comes from the Lord, you can have the understanding that God does something at the beginning. It comes from him, and then he walks away. But the idea behind the ESV translation, salvation belongs to the Lord, meaning that the Lord is involved in the salvation of a person from the very beginning to the very end. So this is the the three questions that I'm asking the text. What does this mean? The salvation comes from the Lord. How do we apply it? And number three, why should we trust it? What does it mean? How do we apply it? And why should we trust it? Let's go with the first point. What does this mean? If there's one thing that I've learned as a pastor, I've been a pastor for about 16 years. I've been a Christian for about uh, 21, 22 years. And if there's one thing that continues to be a controversial topic inside the church and outside the church, it's actually this topic. And what I've learned is that a lot of people actually don't have an issue saying that God is in control of everything, right? Amen? Amen. Nobody has a major issue saying that God is, at the end of the day, he ordained, that he works uh, through everything and he's going to accomplish his purposes. Um, not, not a lot of people have issues with that. What I've learned, though, is that one of the issues that people have with the sovereignty of God is when we say, for example, that God is in control of both everything good and everything evil. That's controversial. Controversial is when we say that even though God is not responsible for the sin in the world, God does ordain and uses evil in the world. That's controversial. And all to accomplish his purposes. And listen, if you're here, and I know I'm visiting, so please, it's my issue. Don't take it with Eric. But the reason why we have to pay attention to that is because that's a concept that shouldn't be controversial if it's in the Bible. And if that's your case, I really want to help you. I I really want to help you with that. And I'm going to provide some sort of uh, reasoning why is it that the Bible talks about this and why is it that maybe you and I should embrace that with our whole hearts. Now, the the second reason why this is a controversial thing is because when we talk about salvation and I said it already, is that we say that God is sovereign or is in control of the salvation of a person from beginning to end, meaning that God is the one that saves people, sustains people, you will see that in a second, and then uh, completes the salvation of a person. Part of the issue, and I will get back to that later on, is we also have a conflict between reconciling free will and the sovereignty of God, like if these things are opposed to one another. Now, I want to show you, just for a second, how this text, the entire chapter 1 and chapter 2, actually the rest of the book, is full of this concept of the sovereignty of God over everything. 
in creation and in salvation. Let me show you how the sovereignty of God is displayed here um, over everything in nature and everything else, over good and evil. Look at here, for example, in chapter 1, we have a few examples, and it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Remember, this is Jonah trying to escape, and this is the Lord bringing the wind into the sea to cause the storm. In verse 7, the sailors, if you guys remember, don't know what to do with this thing. They're, about to, they're trying to figure out why the storm is upon them. And they use this thing here of the lots, cast lots. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, that was a practice in some areas of the, in some places of the New Testament in which they would trust God, throw the, uh, cast the lots, and if he landed on you, you were responsible for whatever thing was going on right at that time. And this is their understanding is that God was behind pointing the person who was responsible. When you look at verse 17 in chapter 1, it says that it was the Lord, the one that brought the fish. It wasn't that Jonah was just swimming in the midst of the storm and the fish just swallowed him up. The text says that it was the Lord bringing the fish. That's only chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have more examples, which is part of the prayer that Eric started talking about last week. In verse 3, it is Jonah the one that says, you cast me in. Uh, it is Jonah the one that is praying to God and says, everything that I'm going through is because of you. Notice that it says, you cast me into the deep. If you were here last week, Eric made the case that we know that the sailors were responsible. We know that Jonah was responsible, but Jonah understands that behind all of that was God. In verse 6, he recognizes that, is the one, that God is the one saving his life, that it wasn't the fish, but the behind the fish was God. You brought my, up my life from the pit. And then in verse, seven, in verse 9 is when we get the concept that we're talking about today. That salvation belongs to the Lord. But I'm going to skip that one for a second. And I want you to look at verse 10. At the end, after Jonah goes through everything, the text says that the Lord spoke to the fish. I hope you know that that was not the Lord having a conversation with the fish. But that the Lord demanded to the fish. And Jonah was saved. We're going to go back to that verse at the end of the sermon. All of these texts just points how the Lord is in complete control of everything from beginning to end. That God is in control of nature. That God is in control of the storm. That God is in control of calming the storm. That God is in control of the, of the fish. That God is in control of, of, uh, of everything good and, and everything evil that happens in the world. The Lord is in, con is in complete control of everything. But I want to argue that God is not only in control of that, but he's actually in control. And this is the point of verse number nine. Uh, verse 9 of the salvation of a person from beginning to end. The reason why I say that, and now we can go back to verse 9, is because all scholars agree, at least most scholars agree, that when Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord, he is not saying, or salvation comes from the Lord, he is not just talking about the sovereignty of God over nature. He's talking about the spiritual condition of his heart. And how the Lord was saving his soul from everything that was destroying him. Salvation 
belongs to the Lord or comes from the Lord is Jonah recognizing that he was dead in his sin, that he was completely corroded by sin, that he was sold into to sin, and that the Lord, through all these means, was saving his soul. Because the main problem for Jonah was not his problems and circumstances. Jonah's main problem was his heart. Jonah's main problem was not the condition in which he found himself. Jonah's main problem was his spiritual condition. So when Jonah is saying salvation comes from the Lord, he is both recognizing that he was a sinful person and that the Lord was saving him from himself. This is why I think that the best way to summarize what salvation comes from the Lord is this. If you could please put it on the screen. Salvation comes from the Lord means three things. That God creates salvation, that God carries salvation, and that God completes salvation. Now, the reason why I use all this is because I was trying to be all cool, but I could, I could explain that in different ways. That God creates salvation, meaning that it is God the one that takes the initiative for someone to be saved. That it is God the one that takes the initiative to actually look for a person, and by the power of the Spirit, illuminates the mind of the person, and by the power of the Spirit and the Word of the Lord, um, transform the, 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 the heart of the person, and that it is by the power of the Spirit, God, that a person comes to believe, and it is a gift of the Spirit that a person comes to repentance. Did, did you guys catch that? Everything that happens for a person to become a Christian is from the Lord. It is not because you were cool. It is not because you were a better person and the Lord looked at you and said, man, that person's got to be a Christian. It is not even, listen, I'll explain that later on, but it's not even that you were looking for the Lord first and then he looked at you and then he said, oh, you know, I should take him in. The salvation of a Christian it's all about God's doing. He's the one that begins it. He's the one that creates it inside a person. Check this out. Not only he saves the person at the beginning, but he sustains that person in their salvation. This is why I'm using the word carries. Meaning that he is the one that continues to work in you through the power of the spirit and the power of the word. It is the God, the one that takes you from point A to point B. That everything that is happening in your life and the Lord bringing and, and working in your heart is the Lord's doing. It's, I know that we read the Bible. I know that we pray. I know that we fast, like one of you. Uh, I know that we do all of that stuff. I know that we give and we go out and evangelize. I know that we do all these things. But at the end of the day, it is God working in us. This is a misconception. People think that when we say, well, there's different philosophies on how people view Christianity, right? People would say, well, God does his part, and I'll do my part. That's one philosophy. Second philosophy is God does everything for me, therefore I don't have to do anything. I'll address that in a second. But the third position, which happens to be my position because I think it's the most biblical, not because I'm saying that, but because I think it is, is that it is the Lord working in you through your will. It is the work of the Spirit influencing your mind, your affections, and your will. 
So even when we're doing things, it is because the Lord was working in us and through us. And the last one here is that the Lord completes salvation. It's because he's going to take you home. Whatever he started, he's going to finish. Now, this is the Old Testament. And everything that I'm saying actually comes not just from this passage, but from the New Testament. And I wanted to show you some passages here just for you to keep, keep in mind. Look at what it says here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And I am sure of this. This is Hebrews. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, this is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is, I can't see the screen. There's no screen back there, you guys, so I can't see anything back there. Um, excuse. So, uh, so the idea here is that the Lord, look at here, this is Paul saying, I am completely sure of this. It's not, I have questions about this. I wonder if this is true. I wonder if this is the way it's going to go. No, no, no. He says, I am sure of this. That the one that started working in me, he's going he's to bring it to completion. And the last part of the verse, the, the, the day of Jesus Christ is when Jesus returns. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Not only was Jesus the one that saved you and gave the faith to believe. Sounds ironic, but that's exactly what it is. But he's the one that is perfecting your faith. So it's not just that he did his part and now you do your part. No, no, no. It is the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And then in Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Notice that he calls the Bible the word of his grace. What an amazing way to describe the Bible. Which is able to build, up, build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's the same principle. It is the Lord that saves you. It is the Lord that builds you up. And it is the, it is the Lord that is going to take you home. Salvation is from the Lord. Check this out. And I'm borrowing this from Eric as well. The crazy thing about Jonah's prayer is that he's still in the fish. I find that crazy. See, because modern day Christianity actually says something different. Modern day Christianity tells you, you know when we rejoice? When the Lord takes all your problems away. Come to Jesus and he's going to take all your problems away. Stop suffering today. Come to Jesus and he's going to take all your problems away. And Jonah is experiencing joy and you will see thanksgiving and salvation inside the fish. You know how nasty that name might have been? Can you just picture the smell? I don't even know why I'm going there, but can you just picture? <laughs> Problems did not go away. His external issues did not go away. But his soul was being transformed. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now, I did tell you that I was going to try to help you process this a little bit more. 
I think that the Bible should be enough. But just in case, let me provide some arguments to help you process this. I think that sometimes we struggle with this concept of um, this concept of the sovereignty of God, and especially when it comes to salvation and everything else, partly, partly, because sometimes we want to know the secrets of God instead of focusing on what God has revealed. So yes, last week I was preaching at the West Chicago campus, and this uh, young lady approached me, um, a young adult, and, and really nice spirit. She was not fighting or anything, but she did ask me a question, and this is how I responded. She says, can you tell me why is it that God allows babies to die? I'm not going to give you the answer, because that's not the main point of the sermon, but this is the thing. God has his reasons. I don't think that anybody should rejoice in the fact that babies die. I do think that we got to keep in mind that when David lost his baby, he knew that he was going to see his baby in heaven. I will see my, ba- I will see my son in the son of the living, he says. There's reasons for some Christians to believe that when babies die, they actually go before the presence of the Lord, which is my position. But even if that's the case, even if that's not the case, the problem sometimes is this. We want to know the secrets of God instead of paying attention to what he has already revealed. This is the reason why Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to know and asking the question. But you have to question your motive. Another reason why people might struggle with this, though, is because we have a tendency to separate the works, the, the, work, the Lord's doing from the Lord's heart. See, regardless of what the Lord allows or brings into our lives, we can always be completely sure that God is a God of love and that God is a good God. If that is the primary understanding behind everything that you're processing, you know that even though sometimes you don't understand why allows or brings things into your life, we do know because the Bible makes it clear that God, everything he does, comes from a heart of love and a good God. Our problem is that sometimes we don't trust that heart much. And the third reason why people struggle with this sometimes is because we actually have created a problem with free will and the sovereignty of God. So the reason is really simple. If I am free to make a choice, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then I don't have the freedom to make a choice. Let me ask you something. Where did you get that from? Not from Scripture. Not from Scripture. This dichotomy is not in Scripture. The Bible does tell you that you you made choices. You chose the Lord if you're a Christian. You came to him. You asked for forgiveness. If you haven't done that, then you're not Christian yet. 
But the Bible also shows you that salvation comes from the Lord. So why is it that this is a conflict when the Bible shows you both things at the same time? Actually, I want to invite you that the next time you read the Bible, you will see how many of these references you find in the entire Bible. This, I know that from a limited understanding, tiny little brain, it is hard for us to see these two things together. But they're always together. Don't separate what the Lord has not separated. Actually, how many of you guys, well, I don't want to put you on the spot, but as a church, we are reading the Bible, um, uh, the, the Old Testament uh, in two years and once the New Testament per year, something like that, right? This week we're reading, we just read Joshua 23, right? And if you know the story of Joshua, he was the one that replaced Moses and he's leading people into the promised land. And right before they go into the promised land, the Lord tells Joshua to call the leaders to be strong and to obey the law of God and to love the Lord and to cling to the Lord. And this is God, this is God calling Joshua to tell the leaders to be responsible, to seek for the Lord, to obey the Lord, to be committed to the Lord, all of these things. Human responsibility. This is what you ought to do. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. What is interesting, though, is that when you read the entire chapter, you find phrases like this. It was the Lord, the one that gave you rest from all your enemies. See that the Lord has done uh, to all these nations. The Lord, your God, will punish your enemies. It is the Lord, your God, who fought your fights. There's no conflict whatsoever. You do, and God did. You respond, but God is doing. You are responsible, but God is sovereign. Why is that a conflict? Because sometimes we allow our limited understanding to dictate how we view God and how we view ourselves. Listen, if you're a believer, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this understanding of the sovereignty of God over everything and sovereignty of God over your salvation, salvation should change everything about you. I actually believe that this is one of the things that the Lord used in my personal life to give me a completely different worldview on how to live my life. You know why I pray? Because I, I know that the Lord is going to use my prayers. But because God is sovereign, I know that even if I pray wrong, he's still going to accomplish his purposes. And he's going to use somebody else's prayer that was the right prayer. You know why I teach and preach? Because I know that there's power in the word of God. And I know that if I take the time to pray and study and proclaim, the Lord is going to do something. There is power in the word of God. But I also know that if I'm a really lame preacher, the Lord is still going to accomplish his purposes. Do you know why I want to try to raise my kids the best way I can? Because I have a responsibility. What I teach them actually has an effect on them. But I also know that my God is a God of promises. And that he says that he will bless not only me by my children, but also my children. 
and that his promises go from generation to generation. Does that mean that my kids are Christian automatically? Of course not. But it means that God starts something and he's going to finish something. Do you know why I do evangelism if I can? Listen, because people only come to the saving knowledge of Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. You don't speak, people don't convert. But I also know that even if I'm not evangelizing, when God is going to save someone, he's going to save someone. You know why we, want, we should do it? Because we want to ride the wave of what the Lord is already doing. Did you know that when, how many of you guys are Christians? Raise your hand. Because tonight we're going to pray for you right now. <laughs> this is the thing. Did you know by the, by the time you proclaim Jesus as your Savior, the Spirit was already working in your heart? This is part of the reason. Did you know by the time you come to Jesus, there was because God was already bringing you to him? Did you know that the reason why you confess your sins and you, pray, uh, you trusted the Lord Jesus for your salvation is because the Lord had already been working in your heart prior to that? When people say, I raise my hand, I come to the front, amen to all of that. We ought to do all of that. But before you do that, the Lord was already illuminating your mind and transforming your heart. Because God is working in his sovereignty at all times. One of the beautiful things that we sang today was when we says, be still my soul and know that he... I'm destroying the song, but be still my soul and know that he will never let me go. I do have a responsibility, but God is sovereign. And that should, that should change the way you live. That's question number one. Question number two, how do we apply it? Okay, this is interesting. I know that there's got to be at least one person in the room right now or online, worshiping with us online, that is asking, that is saying, Hannibal, I heard this before, and that is such a dangerous teaching. Because it leads people to fatalism. Uh, well, the Lord is doing. Uh. Or it makes passive Christians. How about if I say that's, that's also an argument that comes from culture, not from the Bible? And I did that. I think that the best example of that is actually in the text is Jonah. Look at what Jonah does as he's. Look at how Jonah is transformed because of his understanding that salvation comes from the Lord. Look at him, verse seven. It says, "When my life was ebbing away, I remember you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple." There's so much that we can say there, but look at here. In the midst of his struggles. He remembered that God is sovereign. How do I know that? Because the name that he uses to describe God is Lord, which is the covenant name of God. And if God is covenant, then he's also sovereign because a covenant God is going to do is has absolute control of everything and will never walk away from you uh, under any circumstance. I always see the word this, the sovereignty of God and the covenant of God as cousins. Because we know that God would always stick with you because God is sovereign over all. And in the midst of his struggle, Jonah can see that. Jonah knows that even though he's struggling and he is swimming, and he's, or whatever he's going through, he knows and he remembers that his God is a sovereign covenant 
God. Actually, the image of the holy temple, and this was mentioned last week as well, is he's remembering not just that God is in a holy temple, but that he was in the holy temple where you find the mercy seat. And it was the mercy seat where the sacrifices took place, the propitiation, some translation puts, the propitiation seat. Meaning that the Lord had already somehow in Jonah's head, the Lord had already provided a way for his wrath to be appeased and and forgiveness to be accomplished. As Christians, we have something better than what Jonah had. Did you know that? Because we not only have a concept, and we don't have a temple, and we don't have a sacrifice, but we have the ultimate temple and the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So if sometimes you doubt if God is sovereign and if he has made a covenant with you, you have to remember that that's precisely the reason why Jesus Christ went to the cross. This is why when we participate in communion, we call that communion the covenant of his blood. And 1 Corinthians says that we remember the cross and the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation continues to be from the Lord. And salvation will be finalized by the Lord. In the midst of your struggle, you can always remember that God, the covenant sovereign God, will never walk away from you. You know, this morning when I was finishing my sermon here, I remember this story um, that my old pastor shared with me. Uh, it was about this man that used to be a Christian, walk away from the Lord, and, and he's struggling. And um, he was doing something, my pastor was doing something like with the police officers or something, and he, uh, the, the police officer sent him to speak to this man because he was in trouble. And as he's talking to him, he realized that he had this background in Christianity. And, uh, and, and he started to share this reality about the covenant sovereign God with this man. Because if he was truly a Christian, let's say this man was truly a Christian and he converted before, but he wandered away from the Lord, God still had a covenant with him. So he tells me the story, right? And then at the end, he tells me, he looks at me and says, Hannibal, if I ever walk away from the Lord, you have to tell me the same thing that I told that man. That even though I walked away from the Lord, my sovereign covenant God, covenant God never walks away from me. And he said, and that will bring me back. You know, I think that that's true. 100%. So if I ever, God forbid, if I ever walk away from the Lord, one of you guys is going to have to come to me and remind me of my covenant sovereign God. That will never walk away from me, even when I have walked away from him. The second argument, uh, how we apply this from Jonah, is that it is actually the sovereignty and the covenant love of God what leads you to want to die to your idols. And this comes from verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. This is what he's saying. That whenever we put our trust and we find our meaning and our value and our dignity and our security in anything outside of God, that will drive you away from the love of God. That's what the text says. 
That's why idolatry is such a big issue. When we allowed other things to take the place of God, that thing has the potential to drive us away from the love of God. If that is true, then the opposite is also true. When we cling to the love of God, you would actually say no to your idols. Someone may be asking, how is that, how is that related to the sovereign coven, covenant love of God? Well, because of the word God's love. I actually think, I told you that I like the NIV, um, but I like the ESV much more precisely because of things like this. The translation in the ESV is the steadfast love of God. Jonah is recognizing that the only thing that is going to keep him from idols, from clinging to idols, which by the way, the word cling there could be translated as trusting. The only way that you're going to stop trusting idols is when you trust the steadfast love of God more. The sovereign covenant love of God more. And lastly, the big argument for a lot of people is if you believe in the sovereignty, sovereign covenant love of God, you will not be obedient, they say. But that's not what Jonah experienced. Look at how he responds in verse eight, 9. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Can you see how Jonah is making a connection between gratitude and obedience? It is because I'm grateful for your salvation that I will be obedient. I think I shared this with you a few months ago or a few years ago. But there's a tendency of us thinking that if you want people to become obedient, you either use fear or you use rewards. Right? Isn't that what we do as parents sometimes? How many of you guys have ever... No, I don't want to ask kids. How many, we have kids here, right? I have used fear or reward to try to invite my kids to obedience. You know how I do it? If you don't behave, I'm going to punish you. That's fear. Or if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to take away something. That's fear. Or if you do what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to buy you candy. That's reward. How is that working for you? That only works as long as the kid feels the fear and as long as the kid feels the, 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 hungry, the hunger for the reward. But that gets all super fast. And your kid grows up and he's or she's no longer afraid of you. So that doesn't work. And unless you're a multimillionaire, you don't have enough money to buy rewards. So that doesn't work. You know what works? Love. You love them well, and eventually they will follow. The Lord loved us well, and that's why we follow. Jonah felt the love of God, and that's why he was grateful and praised the Lord. And therefore, he wanted to follow. Obedience always follows grace and mercy. And grace and mercy come from love. Can you see why the concept of the sovereignty 
covenant love of God actually changed everything. Can you see why that little sentence, salvation comes from the Lord, changed uh, Jonah in radical ways? Have you believed in that just as much? If not, ask of our sovereign God to help us not only believe and understand it, but live it. Last question, one minute. Why should we trust it? This is the thing with the sovereignty of God. And to know that, one, that, that the Lord is the one that creates and carries and car- that carries and is going to complete salvation. This is the beauty of this thing. That I know that in the midst of everything that I live and whatever the Lord allows or brings into my life, it would always feel like if I'm dying. But the pattern in the scripture is that after you die, you would always resurrect. Isn't that what we saw with Jesus Christ? After he died, he resurrected. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. Look at what it says in verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, sovereignty, and he vomited Jonah unto dry land. This is the promise for the Christian. There's always resurrection. Hear me out. Sometimes the resurrection is inside the fish. Sometimes the resurrection, it's outside the fish. But there's always resurrection. You just trust in your sovereignty, in your sovereign covenant love, God, that fully displayed who he is in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that we have your word. We are grateful, Lord, that we don't have to guess who you are and how you are, Lord, and things you do. My prayer for us today is really simple. Help us understand, believe, and apply the reality that we have a sovereign, covenant love, God, that is in complete, in complete control of our salvation from beginning to end. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...